0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on mate? Great to have you along for some more Half-Assed History. This week on the agenda, gonna be having a chat about the Suez Canal. Uh, this is, of course, the canal that connects the Red Sea and the, Medi- and the Mediterranean Sea through Egypt, from Port Said uh, in the north all the way down to Suez in the south, along, of course, the Isthmus of Suez. Um, it's just shy of 200 kilometres long. It's got no locks in it, so like, for instance, you know, the Panama Canal, and it runs through some existing bodies of water like the Bitter Lakes. And, of course, you will have heard of it recently because it's been all over the headlines after being blocked by a massive cargo ship the other week. Um, but there is... Quite a bit of history behind the canal itself going back a lot longer than you might realize. I was I was surprised to learn just how far back the history of the of the canal goes. It was built obviously in the 19th century. You know, that, that might be something you already know, but ideas around connecting the, the Mediterranean and the Red Sea and, and and actually even managing to make that happen go back a lot further than that. So anyway, the canal as we know it today was open, as I say in the 19th century, 1869, completely revolutionized world trade and travel. Uh, the construction of the canal had an enormously far-reaching impact on global affairs, and not just throughout the Mediterranean, but actually much, much farther afield. It sped up international shipping enormously, it changed the accessibility of regional markets, and, and perhaps most significantly, it upset the balance of economic power enjoyed by some of the world's most powerful nations. And it goes even further than this as well. It's not just the world of economics and trade, but also... The political realm uh, as well, especially more recently, the Suez Canal has been the centre point of of several political and indeed military conflicts over the years and, and a fair few crises as well. And this is all just from, you know, one ditch that was dug in the desert. And today it's still finding its way into the headlines, which is pretty amazing. So as I say, a long and storied history behind the Suez Canal, if you'll believe it, a lot to chat about today. So let's get to it. We're going all the way back. Going all the way back here to, uh, well, as I say, not to 1869, not even, uh, not in, not even 18, 1859 when the uh, construction actually began. We're going a little bit further back than even that, I reckon. We're going back all the way to the 19th century BCE, almost 4,000 years ago. How about that then? It's not quite the Suez Canal, I have to be honest, but uh, we can actually trace uh, canals being dug in this area to connect the Mediterranean the Red Sea effectively. Uh, all the way back to the Egyptian Middle Kingdom under the leadership of uh, either Pharaoh Senesret the, the the second or Senesret the third. Now, the so-called Canal of the Pharaohs, it, it wasn't specifically dug to connect the Mediterranean with the Red Sea. It was dug east-west, unlike the North-South Suez Canal, and it connected the Nile. With the bitter lakes, and it's thought that four thousand years ago the Red Sea was actually naturally connected to the bitter lakes, and so with the canal of the Pharaohs connecting to the, the Nile to the bitter bitter lake, which were then connected to the Red Sea, you could technically get from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea via boat. But obviously that wasn't that wasn't the the reason for its construction. The reason was to connect the Nile across to the uh, to the Red sea, across to the bitter lakes and thereby the Red Sea as well. Anyway. These canals apparently are very heavily dependent on the tides, uh, but still there's evidence that uh, Egypt conducted trade via the Red Sea. The canals that they used uh, to do this, they were maintained, they were developed, even expanded in future years. There were expeditions sent by Hapshetsut in the uh, the 15th century BCE that indicate um, uh, the continued existence of a water-based route between the Nile and the Red Sea. Uh, This is bolstered by further evidence from the reign of Ramesses II, a century or so later. Um and remains of some of these canals, dug, you know, so many, so many hundreds and even thousands of years ago. Uh, remains of them were discovered, funnily enough, by none other than Napoleon. He was in Egypt at the end of the eighteenth century, investigated these remains. We'll come back to this in a little bit. We'll talk about Napoleon in just a little bit. But these canals are thought to have been dug, as I say, thousands of years ago and to have existed all the way, all the way right through to the classical era, with leaders such as the Persian, the Persian Darius the Great and the Ptolemaic King Ptolemy II working on and even extending canals in this area. However, at around this point, uh, the Red Sea—I mean, the Red Sea—had been pulling naturally further, further south as as the years has gone on. And and at this point, you know, this plus plus the famous silt of the Nile blocking up the other end of the canal made uh, maintenance of these waterways very, very difficult, indeed, increasingly difficult. And uh, I mean, the water route between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea apparently existed right up until 767 um, CE, at which point the canals were finally closed up by the Abbasid Caliphate to restrict trade to their rivals. But as a precursor to the concept of, you know, what would later on uh, go on to become the Suez Canal, a much, much longer history, much longer history than you might have expected. They're going all the way back to the Middle Kingdom in Egypt. Anyway. From 6—oh, uh, sorry, from 767 onwards, um, the way is shut. If you want to get from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea, you've got to go the long way, mate. You've got to go the long, bloody way. And as the centuries pass, there are plenty of people who aren't actually happy <laughs> with this situation. They don't want to go the long way. Um, for example, um, in 1488, right, there's a Portuguese fella. His name is Bartolomeu Dias, and he manages to actually sail the long way, right? He manages to sail around the southern tip of Africa. He opens up maritime trade routes with, Ind- uh, with India and the Spice Islands that uh, go— all the way around the, the Cape of Good Hope, the south of Africa, and then across, uh, you know, all the way around to, uh, to the western Mediterranean, to, to Portugal. Now, you'd think, fantastic, this is great, you know, a, a, a sea route all the way to India, fantastic. But there are some people who aren't so hot on this, because up until this point, these routes had been overland, right, which was, of course, slower and more expensive. But a lot of these routes had converged on the economic superpower that was Venice. And so when the Portuguese took the spice trade to the ocean, Venice lost out enormously. And this is not a joke. This is where it comes back to our story about the Suez Canal. The Venetians began to investigate if it would be possible to re-dig a canal from the Nile to the Red Sea. So these spy ships would sail there instead of going all the long way around and ending up in Portugal. Maybe they could do a little bit of a shortcut again through the Red Sea and then through the Mediterranean and maybe put, and maybe, you know, do something to stem the tide of, of Venetian obsolescence. Now, the Venetians went so far as to uh, begin negotiations with the Mamluks. These were the people, the blokes that were in charge of Egypt at the time. But these negotiations were cut short in 1517 when the Ottomans conquered Egypt um, under Sultan Selim I, and that was the end of that. Uh, Venice, they were they were cut out and they weren't to be involved anymore. But the Ottomans themselves, who would then rule Egypt in in name at least for the next 500 years or so, They began to investigate the idea of a canal just as Venice had wanted, uh, as they wished to connect Constantinople to the Indian Ocean and again get a slice of that pie that, uh, you know, all the riches that were coming in from the subcontinent and from the Spice Islands. But this idea, it was eventually abandoned as uh, after a bunch of research, it was decided that it would be too expensive and too impractical and so the idea was uh, was popped on the back burner. Now we fast forward from this uh, from the 16th century now to the late 18th century to 1798. And who's this? Yep, just as I said, you're expecting him, old mate Napoleon. He's campaigning away in Egypt. 1798, and he begins to dig about looking for these ancient waterways that were spoken of old. And he finds remains, he finds the ruins of these canals too. He finds evidence that they were there. His teams, of you know, engineers, archaeologists, surveyors, whatever else, they make some pretty amazing discoveries that illuminate our, our understanding of, of the, you know, as, it, as it's known today, the canal of the pharaohs, just like I, you know, I told you about before. And a few years later, once Napoleon had become the, uh, the French emperor, right, he once again opened up the idea of a naval connection between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, so as to benefit France. However, once again, this project never got off the ground, although this time it was for a very interesting reason indeed. I mean, you know, we've come forward several hundred years, we've, we've got the, the technology at this point you would think in order to pull off a feat of engineering of this, uh, of this magnitude. But the project still didn't gain any traction, and this is because. Napoleon's surveyors, right, somehow concluded that there was an eight and a half metre difference in the height of the two seas. Apparently, according to these blokes who were out there doing the work for Napoleon, they came back and they've come back to him. They said, listen, it's no good, right? The Red Sea is eight and a half metres higher than the Mediterranean Sea. And this would mean that if we were to build the canal, we'd have to put locks and pumps and all sorts of expensive extra infrastructure in there. And it's just not going to be worth it. And so once again, the idea was abandoned. But you remember from the beginning of the show, I told you there aren't any locks in the Suez Canal, as opposed to something like the Panama Canal, which is bloody full of them. There aren't any locks in the Suez Canal. So why did these engineers, why did these surveyors come back to Napoleon and say, hey, we need to put locks in because there's a difference in the, uh, in, in the sea levels, in, in the levels between these two seas? They just got it wrong. They just got it wrong. Like, they just looked at, uh, they, they used inaccurate and outdated measurements. They used, um, they used data that they'd taken years and years ago that was incomplete and, and, and faulty. They buggered the whole thing up. They go back to Napoleon and say, it can't be done. He's like, oh, geez, all right, okay, I guess we're not doing it. And once again, the Suez Canal, for, for the umpteenth time, was put on the back burner. History just wasn't quite ready for the Suez Canal to be built. But the idea was such a powerful and such an alluring one that it didn't lay dormant for long. Because in 1830, there was a British general whose name was Francis Chesney, and he told the British government that there was no difference, in fact, in the heights between the two seas, and that a canal was indeed possible. However, he was ignored. The British were against a canal like this being dug. They didn't want access to Indian markets made any easier than, than, you know, that it already was. By this point, of course, in history, they controlled much of the area that was traversed by those sailing around the, the south of Africa to the Indian Ocean. India is a British colonial possession. The Cape of Good Hope is under British control as well. And the British didn't want a canal between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea to mess up this little racket they've got going on with British warehouses overloaded with goods in, 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 south, in the south of Africa that are being brought you know back from, uh, back from the subcontinent, back from, uh, back from Southeast Asia. So instead, the British you know, completely ignored this idea of building a canal, and instead it was the French... Who picked up the idea in the 1830s and 1840s? There was a French fella by the name of Linon de Bellefond, right? And uh, he did further surveying work on the Isthmus of, uh, of Suez, and he concluded that a canal was indeed possible. And he went so far as to, uh, to draw up some plans for it. And plenty of other people were roped in as well. There were some other, you know, famous engineers from the time, people who had experience working on, on massive engineering undertakings like this. An Italian-Austrian railroad pioneer, his name was Alois Negrelli. Uh, he also showed an interest in the project he was brought in, in. In the 1840s, he helped to contribute to, you know, some very concrete plans for the canal that were put together. And it all culminated in 1854, when a French diplomat whose name was Ferdinand de Lesseps, right, he got permission from the Khedive, or the the viceroy, I guess you could call him, of Egypt, Uh, as a bloke whose name was Syed Pasha. He said, yep, no worries, mate, you can go ahead and build the canal. At this point in history, Egypt is a a tributary state of the Ottoman Empire, so technically it is part of the Ottoman Empire, but it does have a lot of uh, autonomy. Um, so Said Pasha, the, the Khadiv, the Viceroy, is able to say, yep, no worries, sign off on the whole deal, and he, he uh, transfers, he delegates this uh, responsibility to Deliceps, who is going to take care of it. Now, Deliceps, he creates a, a concessionary company with the power to to run the canal for 99 years after it was first opened, and so now the the, the project finally starting to get off the ground uh, properly here. Now, Deliseps, interestingly, wasn't just involved with the construction of the Suez Canal. This wasn't the only canal that he had a hand in. He also, later on in life, uh, was involved with some of the initial plans for the Panama Canal, although his involvement there wasn't quite as successful as with the Suez's. uh, You know, But that's another, an entirely different story there. For now, Deliseps, in charge of the Suez Canal, sets up the Suez Canal Company, and uh, this company takes up the plans made by, you know, de De Belafonte, Negrelli, others, Uh, and opened up for investment so as to begin work. However, there were a range of hurdles that the Suez Canal uh, Company had to actually overcome in order to gain this funding. People were initially very sceptical of the idea, and they were unwilling to gamble on the project. After being established in 1858, the Suez Canal Company had to work very hard indeed to get people to invest, but the idea eventually caught on, particularly in France, and, uh, and the money began to come in. One of the most significant obstacles that the Suez Canal Company had to overcome, in addition to the funding problems that it had, was British opposition to the project. I said before how Britain did not want the the status quo upset. They didn't want the Suez Canal built. The British Empire is the world's preeminent naval and economic superpower, and they don't want that to change. The Suez Canal is a a threat. It's a threat to their position. It opens up the Mediterranean to lucrative eastern markets without the necessary trip around the British-controlled southern tip of Africa. And the British government, therefore, they lobbied very hard indeed against the canal project. They sought to undermine it wherever they could. Um, and they use justifications such as their objection to the plans to use involuntary labour while digging the canal. Unpaid, unfree labour was built into the plans of the of, of the canal's construction. Uh, Corvee, as it was called, unpaid labour that uh, is is levied more or less as a tax on people. Instead of paying with money, they pay with uh, pay with labour. It's sometimes called statute labour. It's essentially a form of slavery. Uh, it still exists today in some parts of the world, um, but is usually typically associated with the with the feudal era. Uh, Corvee labour, it was nonetheless part of the plans uh, for digging the Suez Canal, and was indeed used in the uh, in the opening stages of the uh, of the canal's construction. And the British used this as a pretext to object to the project as a whole. Now, how much they actually cared about Corvey remains up for debate, of course. And the more cynical-minded analis- uh, analysts will, uh, will will certainly see this as a as a, a smoke screen, as an excuse to undermine the whole idea of the Suez Canal from the, from the get go. But in any case, uh, you know, despite the the British objections, uh, no, nothing could stop construction. Ultimately, beginning in eighteen fifty nine, and while forced labour was used for the for the opening five years of, the, of this construction period, for the first half of it, uh, it uh, Corvey was removed from the project in eighteen sixty four. The British complaints were good for that at least, but they couldn't prevent the canal from being dug. It was a massive massive undertaking. It's estimated that 1.5 million total workers contributed to the project. On any given day, there were 30,000 people working on digging out the canal in, in, it has to be said, pretty grim conditions. There were cholera epidemics amongst the workers. And, you know, while you'll see outlandish death toll figures like 120,000, I mean, it wasn't that high, certainly, but still thousands and thousands of lives were lost across the 10-year construction period in, in digging this, uh, in digging the Suez Canal. It took just over a decade uh, to be completed, finally being finished in November 1869. However, the budget on the project had blown out massively. It ended up costing more than twice what the original estimates had said, and further rounds of funding were secured from, from various investors, uh, wealthy families throughout Europe in particular, uh, you know, dug deep into the pockets to get this thing over the line. Um, and ultimately, uh, in in November uh, 1869, as I say, the canal was successfully completed and had a big opening ceremony on the 15th of November. Uh, and then on the 17th, the first procession of ships made their way south uh, through the canal. And I can tell you this, it did not go very smoothly at all. Now, obviously, you know, they're not sailing down in gigantic 21st century mega-container ships. However, that didn't stop one of the ships in the convoy. This is not a joke. This actually happened, right? One of the ships in the very first convoy that was sent down the Suez Canal managed to get stuck and block the canal itself. This is the first time ships have sailed down this canal and we're already seeing it get blocked up. I mean, we got mental over the blockage the other week. The Suez Canal was first blocked. You know, this is not new. This has happened before. It happened the first time ships ever tried to sail down it. The first ever voyage, it was blocked up. What happened is this, right? Check this out. The canal wasn't as deep as they said it was in all parts. And at the end of the first day sailing, one of the ships, a French ship called the Palouse, right, it anchored at the mouth of one of the lakes but after being anchored it was then swung around and became lodged against the bottom of, of the canal on the other side of the opening to the lake so the the rope that connected the ship to its anchor blocked off the entrance into this lake right as it was lodged against the ship's lodged on the on uh, on the bottom of the canal on one side and the anchors on the other so the the, the mouth of the lake is blocked and all the ships that were behind the palus. They weren't able to, you know, sail into the lake, anchor themselves, and uh, and disembark for the night's festivities. Big party that's happening in the big uh, in the nearby town of Ismailia, right? So ships blocking the Suez Canal is old news, mate. It is old news. It's been happening since eighteen sixty nine. Anyway. They managed to dislodge the Palouse the next day and the convoy was underway on the 19th and, uh, and made its way through the rest of the canal all the way down to Suez. Um, but check this out. There's another little sting, another little twist in the tale here when, with the tale of the uh, with the story of the first ever voyage made through the Suez Canal. Because the official story goes that the first ship to pass through, very symbolic, of course, the first ship to pass through it uh, was an imperial French yacht, the Laigle, right? But that's not actually the truth, not at all, because it was in fact a British ship called the HMS Newport that was the first ship to go through its captain, George Nares. Snuck to the front of the convoy under the cover of darkness and got through first. He did a little bit of a tortoise in the hair situation and crept around while everyone was snoozing and managed to uh, to to make history by being the first, the captain, of the first ever ship to go through the canal. Now, obviously, he got in a lot of trouble for this, but secretly, Britain was very pleased with him for cocking his snook at the rest of the world like that. They were big fans of him, sort of thumbing his nose at the people who had made this uh, made made the Suez Canal happen, because of course, remember, the British didn't never wanted the thing to exist. Anyway, the Suez Canal, right? It is complete. It is ready to be used. sure, you know it might not be as deep as needed in some places. no worries a bit of dredging mate in the coming years. that'll sort that right out for you. But here's a new problem though. after it opened, not enough ships actually used the bloody thing. The Suez Canal Company, the one with the 99 year contract, they were balanced on a knife a knife's edge after it opened. I'll tell you what, not only was the project more than double over budget, money wasn't flooding in once the canal actually opened, right? Seps, the diplomat fella from earlier. He swung into action. He's like, I've got to solve this problem. Otherwise the whole thing's going to go tits up, right? He, uh, he swung into action to keep the canal... Um Above water? I don't know. Anyway, he came up with a way, right, to reform the way that ships were being charged uh, tariffs, right? So the, the, the main revenue stream from the Suez Canal there. Uh, he, he found a way to reform this to, to come up with a new system. And this new system was put in place in 1873. It's due with tonnage and I don't really understand it. But guess what, right? It is, broadly speaking, the same system that is in use today. You know, over 100, over 100 years later, obviously scaled up significantly for the, for the 21st century, but nearly 100, 150 years later, the origin of today's system goes all the way back to Deliseps. How's that? Not bad at all. Anyway, with the reform tariff system finally bringing in more money, in combination with more and more ships actually making use of this shortcut between uh, U- Europe and the Eastern Hemisphere, um, the Suez Canal, finally, it is off and running. And let me tell you this, once it was, it changed the world forever. The Suez Canal had such a dramatic effect on world affairs, you won't believe it. It changed everything from the the obvious international shipping and trade to entire political balances of power. And additionally, with the completion of not only the Suez Canal, but also the transcontinental railroad in the United States, the world could now be circumnavigated faster than ever before, and the age of globalisation is approaching rapidly. I mentioned before, however, that Britain was very concerned about how the canal would uh, would impact their position as a world economic superpower. And can I tell you this? Their concerns were extremely well founded. The Suez Canal contributed to a massive financial crisis in Britain as their trade routes around the Cape of Good Hope were buggered, obviously, with the advent of this new shortcut. And this, this crisis is known today as the Panic of 1873. It affected nations all across Europe and North America. But that, and obviously, it's not just due to the Suez Canal, but its origins in Britain were a direct consequence of the economic damage that Britain suffered from the opening of the canal how you know how how badly it affected their economy conversely however Mediterranean European nations they're flourishing as a result of the canal they're bloody loving it particularly Austria Hungary which had invested heavily in the canal and was now able to to reap the rewards now I don't know how well Venice did out of it, though. You know, might have come 400 years too late for them by the sound of it. But the long and the short of it is this new canal, it revolutionized world shipping. It knocked huge amounts of time off of delivery times and, and thereby made cargoes cheaper everywhere. It makes sense. You know, you're cutting days and days off of ships voyages. Less time en route means lower expenses, more overall journeys. And so commerce and trade, they are flourishing. Unfortunately, however, uh, there is another side to this coin and uh, the other aspect of the canal and the ease with which Europe could now access the Red Sea and the areas beyond also meant that the European colonization of Africa sped up enormously. The scramble for Africa took place from the 1870s onwards and a lot of it was, uh, was catalyzed by the existence of the Suez Canal, I'm sorry to say. In fact, in 1882, Britain invaded Egypt in a move that had a fair bit to do with the canal. Check this out. I mentioned before that Egypt was at this point part of the Ottoman Empire but again an autonomous part with a with a kadive a, a a viceroy technically still part of the empire but but broadly speaking in charge of their own affairs. Well, Saeed Pasha's successor, right, Ismail uh, Pasha. He ran up a uh, he ran up a couple of debts, right, a couple of debts here and there. And he was forced to sell his 44% stake in the Suez Canal in 1875 in order to to cover these debts. Now, you'll never guess who bought this 44% stake. It was, in fact, the British government, the former stalwart opponents of the canal's very existence in the first place. Now, the French still controlled a majority stake in the canal, but now the British own a huge percentage of it. But, you know, I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, It wasn't. An uprising known as the Urabi uh, revolt began in 1879, which threatened threatened to to topple the the Viceroy's administration. And with Britain now controlling a 44% share of one of the world's most important waterways, they weren't about to let these upstarts overthrow the Egyptian regime. Now, were they? No. So in 1882, Britain invaded Egypt to quell the Urabi Revolt in what is today known as the Anglo-Egyptian War. Now, don't forget, Egypt is technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but once Britain is finished with the revolt, quashing it once and for all before the end of 1882, Egypt is really only very technically part of the Ottoman Empire in, in little else but name here. Because from 1882 onwards, Egypt is essentially a client state instead. Now, of Great Britain. The maps might tell you something different, but the de facto situation was that Egypt was under British control, or if you want to be really generous, at least under their influence. This was a, a period in Egypt, Egyptian history known as the Veiled Protectorate. The, the, the British went from opposing and undermining the construction of the canal to owning a huge stake of it and controlling the nation in which it is located. So talk about making bloody lemonade there, mate. But still, it seemed to work. The French and the British, they oversaw the operation of the canal, and in 1888, the Convention of Constantinople was signed, which regulated the use of the canal and confirmed the right of all ships to use it in times of both peace and war. Very progressive piece of international law, you would have thought, right? Because the Convention, it ensured that Britain and France didn't come into conflict too much with their opposing interests in Egypt, especially in relation to the canal, and also ensured that ships, again, from any nation could use the canal at any time. Now, as nice as that sounds, of course, it didn't last. When the First World War came about, the Ottoman Empire joined the war on the opposing side of the British, and so the British, they abandoned all pretense and they declared Egypt a protectorate, an actual proper protectorate of, uh, of the British Empire, and they blocked the Suez Canal to enemy ships, removing their access to a hugely important naval passage, the Convention of Constantinople be damned. Shortly after the war... Egypt gained independence from Britain properly, although British troops remained behind to safeguard the Suez Canal specifically. So maybe I shouldn't say properly here, because Britain did maintain a military presence in, uh, in Egypt, principally to oversee the, uh, the, the Suez Canal. Uh, in the 1936 Anglo-Egyptian Treaty, it, was, uh, it laid out the, uh, the terms here, the British, they retained their control over the canal even after the Egyptian protectorate was abolished. Um, and the British, the British, they defended the canal from, uh, from Italian and German attacks during the Second World War, again, preventing their enemies from use, using this critically important uh, strategic waterway here. However, if you think that we're getting close to the end of the, the, of the political drama surrounding the canal here, you couldn't be more wrong because we've barely gotten started, mate. After the Second World War, we now move into the period of the Cold War. And in the opening stages of the Cold War, the Suez Canal was destined to play a hugely important part. In 1952, a bloke whose name was Gamal Abdel Nasser, he overthrew the Egyptian monarchy, and he established himself as president. Now, Nasser was not a fan of the fact that Western European powers still controlled one of his country's most important pieces of infrastructure— I mean, even then, in the 1950s, the British and French controlled the canal and they benefited from its position as a critical part of international maritime trade. NASA decided to do something about this. In 1956, he nationalized the canal. He put it under the authority, uh, he put it under the control, I should say, of the Suez Canal Authority. This was a an Egyptian government-run organization that oversaw it. And he went further than this. He also cut Israel off from the Red Sea as well by closing the Egyptian-controlled Straits of Tehran to Israeli ships. Now, this whole situation did not please Britain, France, or indeed Israel, but Nasser didn't care. He was determined to use the revenue from the canal, this newly nationalized canal, he was going to use this revenue to build the Aswan High Dam, which was a piece of infrastructure that would allow the uh, Egyptians to have greater control over the yearly flooding of the Nile and all of the agricultural benefits that come with it. Nasser's nationalization of the canal and the closure of the Straits of Tehran triggered What's known today as the Suez Crisis, Israel invaded the Sinai Peninsula, the east bit of the, the bit to the east of the canal, uh, and shortly after this, um, uh, France and Britain they came out they 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 made this uh, this joint you know ultimatum they said to Israel oh mate you you better bloody withdraw here's a ceasefire you need to do this right because we're not happy with you invading Egypt, and Israel ignored them and then so France and Britain landed troops in Egypt and seized the canal. They did this in the name of peacekeeping to, you know, ensure regional stability. Uh, But what they actually did was seize control of the canal. And the Egyptians, they were defeated, militarily speaking. Israel had distracted their forces in Sinai and the British and French had swept in with this pretext to invade and, you know, this pretext to invade to try to salvage regional stability. What they've actually done is once again taken control of the Suez Canal. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about the whole Suez crisis. It was a stitch up. The whole affair was planned between Israel and Britain and France from the beginning. Israel would invade, this was the plan, they'd invade, they'd ignore the, you know, these, so, these seemingly good faith demands for a ceasefire. And then Britain and France say, oh, well, look at that, you know, we have to do something to stop the fighting there. And then they would invade Egypt as well, topple the Nasser regime, get back the canal, brilliant job done. And with Egypt defeated, you know, effectively at the hands of the Israelis, the French and the British, it all went to plan until it didn't anymore. Because after realising what was going on, after realising that Britain and France wanted the canal back, NASA and the Egyptians, they blocked it. They scuttled a bunch of ships at both ends, and they made it completely useless. And further, once it came out that the whole thing had been a conspiracy between Israel, France, and Britain, the political repercussions began. The Canadian Secretary of State for External Affairs, a bloke whose name was Lester B. Pearson, he proposed that the UN send in a peacekeeping force to ensure that the canal was open for everyone and also to oversee the Israeli withdrawal from the Sinai Peninsula. Now this plan was backed by the US as well who put a huge amount of pressure on Britain and France to withdraw from Egypt altogether. US President Dwight D Eisenhower threatened to deep six the British pound by selling off US uh, pound sterling bond if the if the uh, if, if the British wouldn't do wouldn't you know follow through with this plan that was being put together. And As a result, the plan worked. Britain and France they were politically humiliated and forced to withdraw, and Pearson won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts here. Many historians see the Suez crisis as the effective end of Britain as a world superpower. Here they are, coerced into an embarrassing political defeat at the hands of a much weaker nation in Egypt. Britain can no longer project its power worldwide as it used to. All of a sudden, even if they lost militarily, Egypt has achieved their political gains. They've come out way, way on top from this whole thing, and, 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 and France and Britain are, are retreating with their tail between their legs due to international pressure that had been put on them even after a military victory. It turns out that the sun did, after all, set on the British Empire, and the Suez crisis demarcates quite clearly the end of of the age of British dominance in world affairs, even if you know today a sizable proportion, proportion of British people still think to seem that Britannia rules the waves, it does not. As for the Suez Canal, after this Egyptian political victory here, it was cleared of the, scuttle, the scuttled wreckage in 1957, and it was reopened conditionally, um, uh, however, because the Egyptians are still not too keen on the Israelis at this point, and uh, Israeli ships are banned from using the Suez Canal. And regional tensions, as time went on, uh, mounted once again. Of course, you've got to remember that this was all happening with the backdrop of the Cold War, in addition to the, the ongoing Arab-Israeli conflict that took place throughout this period as well. And a decade later, in 1967, uh, NASA booted U- UN peacekeeping forces out of, uh, out of Sinai and out of the canal area. And in 1967, we also saw the Six-Day War. You've, you've heard about this, of course, episode 113. Go and get across it there. But at the end of the Six-Day War, Israel controlled Sinai. They controlled the Sinai Peninsula right up to the east bank of the Suez Canal. And Egypt was so determined to avoid Israel having access to the Suez Canal, so determined to make sure the Israelis couldn't use it, right, that they closed the canal altogether, once again, Two. Everyone. But this time, they didn't just sink uh, sink some ships to block it. They also collapsed bridges into it. They even planted sea mines in it as well, rendering it completely unusable by anyone. And it remained closed like this, closed to all traffic, obviously worldwide, for the next eight years. But check this out. When the Egyptians did this, when they actually closed the canal off, there were still ships in the canal. There were 15 ships, right, cargo ships, container ships, from eight different nations, and they were trapped in the canal It was as it was closed in 1967. They remained trapped for eight years. They're just regular cargo ships. One was carrying a, a shipment of T-shirts. The other had a load of plastic toys. But they were stuck. They were unable to exit at either end because of the bridges and the sea mines, what had been put in the canal. 14 of these ships, they anchored in the Great Biddle Lake and they became known as the Yellow Fleet due to the sand that blew onto them as the years progressed. Now, the crew of these ships, the you know, the various crews, they, they met up regularly. They hung out, they organized events. They would go yachting on the lake or they'd organize soccer games on the biggest of all the ships. Uh, there was a pool on the Swedish ship. They're going to, a, going to have a swim on the Swedish ship there and they'd set up a little movie theater on the Bulgarian ship. These crews, they hung out, you know, chilled in what was... Effectively, a military no man's land, as you know, Egypt and Israel bristled at each other on either side of the canal until 1969, when crews then finally began to be able to be rotated off with a minimal number left behind to maintain the crew, uh, maintain the ships themselves. It was sort of a skeleton crew to make sure the ships stayed afloat at least. And in 1972, uh, all the crew were able to leave, and a specialized company maintained the ships until 1975 when finally the canal uh, was, uh, was reopened. But even so, only two ships out of the Yellow Fleet were actually able to make it back to port under their own steam. The poor bloody Yellow Fleet, mate, stuck in a lake in a no-man's land for eight years. Can you believe it? But why, you may ask, did the canal actually reopen in 1975, given the ongoing tension between Egypt and, uh, and Israel, and, and, and more broadly speaking, the Arab world and, uh, and Israel? Well, in the wake of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, Um, during which uh, there were crossings of the Suez Canal and conflict along the Suez Canal, there's still wreckage left over. Uh, There's still debris that was left over from the uh, the Yom Kippur War that's visible on the side of the Suez Canal, even today, which is incredible, right? Anyway, in the wake of this conflict, Arab-Israeli relations slowly, slowly began to normalize. And this culminated, of course, in the 1978 Camp David Accords and the 1979 Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty. But as part of this this slow normalization process, at the end of the Yom Kippur War, an international agreement was made to reopen the Suez Canal. The United States led the effort to sweep the canal for mines and remove uh, the wreckage and the debris that had been put in it, right? And so between 1974 and 1975, the canal was slowly but surely cleared of mines and wreckage. The Suez Canal was officially reopened after this on the 5th of June 1975, eight years to the day. After it was closed and there was a big, big ceremony for it, complete with the Egyptian president, Anwar El sadat He was dressed in a white admiral uniform, strutting up and down the deck of an Egyptian destroyer. A flock of doves was released to mark the occasion. Great big pomp and circumstance there. And ever since, the canal has remained open. In 2014, 2015, the Egyptian government uh, further expanded the canal. They dug a second channel along some of its length, which almost doubled the daily capacity of the of the canal from... 49 to 97 ships per day. And as I say, the canal has remained open ever since, until, well, until the other bloody week, mate, when a massive container ship, the Ever Given, followed in the proud traditions of the Palouse all the way back from 1869, and got stuck on one of the banks, blocking the entire canal, despite the best efforts of that one digger they sent out to free it. Now, of course, as you no doubt know, the ship was freed within a week, but... What a week it was, my goodness. Just another glorious chapter in the storied history of the Suez Canal, which across the hundreds if not thousands of years of its history has seen everything from economic upheaval to political crises to stranded sailors in the 70s swimming in a Swedish ship's pool. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Suez Canal. And I do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, A little bit of extra backstory for something that uh, has currently, you know, been in the news, been in the current affairs recently. So I hope you got something out of it anyway. Uh, That is that for this week. Thanks for tuning in. The normal housekeeping nonsense coming your way here. Uh, If you'd like to uh, send any topic suggestions into the show, please do. HalfHouseHistory.net, you'll find a contact form there and links to subscribe, of course, and link through to the Patreon if you want to uh, support the show financially. I very much appreciate all the people who do exactly that. And, of course, you can gain access to uh, show notes, behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, uncut episodes all sorts of nonsense like that. So uh, patreon.com slash half-hours history if you want to get across that. And thank you for listening, everyone. Even if you're not supporting the show financially, I still appreciate you uh, plugging me into your ear holes every week to have a listen to uh, to a bit of Half-House History. So uh, thanks for being with me and thanks for being part of the team. Anyway, now normally, right, normally I would close out the show with a question, uh, you know, from Reddit. Obviously, obviously, there's a the little, little gag we like to... Um, we like to close the the show a little little sort of uh, reward for all the people who sit through the boring housekeeping stuff. But um, you know, I, I actually looked sort of to try to find a, an appropriate gag, appropriate little question there to uh, to end the show on, and unfortunately, I I couldn't. I actually just couldn't find anything in time you know by the time that i'd written this episode and done all the research and, and recorded whatever else obviously you know the ship had been had been freed from from the uh from the, the bank and had sailed off and all of a sudden this current affair has just been consigned to the the scrap heap of history you know it's already in the rear view and i was just i was disappointed because you know i wanted to end the show with a with a great joke about the ever given but um yeah i don't know it looks like uh Looks like I missed the boat. I guess that ship has sailed.